2006, February 7th. Today's lecture is Lecture 23, The Milky Way, which will begin in just a moment. Okay, so yesterday we saw how we can measure distances over long ranges. We can use different types of stars, Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams, various ways to estimate what the luminosities of stars are going to be based on some distance-independent property. Well, why do we go through that exercise, of course, is we're going to have to be able to tell how big things are, how big the, the di groups of stars are, how far away they are, in order to be able to know something about the place in which we live. And so today and tomorrow, what I'm going to be describing is in a pair of lectures is how we came to discover that, in fact, we live in a very large galaxy consisting of billions of stars. Now, the problem I'm going to pose to you for doing this is to basically think of the following analogy. I'm going to pose to you, say, a homework problem. And the homework problem is you have to map out Franklin County and as much of central Ohio as you can. But there's one catch. You cannot leave the Ohio State University campus to do it, and you can only use a telescope and simple measuring instruments. You can't use the Internet. You can't use satellites. You can't use anything. You can only basically map out Franklin County, the city of Columbus, and, and as much of the central Ohio region as you can see from the tallest building on the Ohio State University campus. Well, how do you do that? How do you tell what the actual shape and appearance and layout of, say, just the city of Columbus would be if you cannot go out and walk around in it? Well, that's exactly, you almost like they say, well, forget it. That's an almost impossible problem. Well, in fact, that's exactly the problem we have in mapping out our galaxy. Right? I can't leave the solar system. It's technologically impossible. I certainly can't do it in any reasonable amount of time. So I have to piece together the structure of our galaxy <coughs> by looking out into the surroundings and trying to gauge where things are. Basically, I have to build the map standing in place from home. This is why we have to have all these different methods for measuring distances. This is why I have to generate ways of recognizing different types of objects that are further away or nearby and finding ways to calibrate that. But I have to rely on the fact that I see the universe as it appears to me. I can't simply break free from the bounds of the Earth and look down upon the system and see how it looks. I have to piece that information together standing in place. That's a tremendous challenge. And part of that challenge was how we actually learned that we are in a Milky Way. So, today's key idea is to define what I mean by the Milky Way. The Milky Way is a galaxy. It's our galaxy, our home galaxy. It appears to us from the Earth to be a diffuse band of light which crosses the sky. If on closer inspection, for example, pulling out a pair of binoculars or a telescope and pointing it at this diffuse band of light that crosses the summer sky, what I find is it is broken up into a myriad tiny faint little stars. We live, in fact, in a fairly large flattened star system. Discovery of the nature of the Milky Way, in fact, has been going on for a very long time. And we'll describe a couple of different ways that people have approached the problem because all of these actually inform the whole question of just how big our universe is. When you started Astronomy 161, the whole universe was basically the solar system with the Earth at the center. But as people began to break away from the view that we were at the center of the solar system, they began to ask how really big space was. How do you really go about answering that question? And it's a question we still are asking in different ways to this, into the 21st century.
So we'll introduce a couple of historical ideas. One of these are philosophical discussions, what people thought it should be basically just by thinking about it and putting what little information they had together and have whatever preconceived notions they brought to it. And we're going to see two particular pictures of the galaxies, one by a man named Wright, the other by Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, and why those actually informed a lot of the debate that was to follow. We're then going to see people who actually attempted to solve this problem by counting stars, by actually going out and trying to gauge the distances to stars and map out the area. The, the analogy with what I brought up earlier about mapping out Columbus is you might go to the tallest building on campus at night and map out where all the traffic lights are because traffic lights turning red and green are relatively distinctive and so you might be able to gauge the layout of the streets by seeing all the traffic lights or the street lights. So there might be a way to map out Franklin County from the tallest building on campus. People could do the same thing. In fact, they're going to be done by two people, the Herschels, William and Carolyn Herschel, and Jacobus Captine, which brought us into the beginning of the 20th century. And finally, the actual way of doing it, which brings into, into play some of the things we learned about yesterday, is to look at the distribution in space of these globular clusters of stars. There are large assemblies of stars that are very distinctive, and they contain, as it turns out, a lot of R.R. Lyrae stars, because they are, in fact, old evolved populations, as we saw last week. And so if you can recognize the R.R. Lyrae stars in them and compare the brightnesses of the R.R. Lyrae stars from one cluster to another, you have a way of gauging distances, just like we did in our little practice problem this morning. So I didn't pick that problem quite at random. So today the problem is, how do we map out the Milky Way when I have to be stuck riding around on one of the stars that makes up that Milky Way? Well, let's first by just define what the Milky Way is. How many of you have actually ever seen the Milky Way? Yeah, I'm very sad that I don't see very many hands go up when I say that. It's unfortunately, this is actually an artifact of our modern civilization. We live in places lit by so many bright lights that you simply cannot see the Milky Way from an inhabited place. I was very fortunate. When I was a child, I grew up in the Mojave Desert of California. My father worked for the uh, Navy Department for a very long time at a place called China Lake. It was a dark place. I could actually see the Milky Way from my backyard in the summertime. In the summer times, uh, when I got older and was a teenager, I actually worked at a Boy Scout camp up in the Sierra Nevada, and we went hiking a lot. There, the Milky Way, which appears as a light band across the sky from my home, was absolutely spectacular, crossing the night sky. But I didn't really see the Milky Way, and this picture was taken from southern Australia, until a number of years ago when I had the good fortune to travel down to the Chilean Andes to go to the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory, which is located uh, just about 300 kilometers north of Santiago. In that sky at night, in a clear moonless night, the Milky Way in the center of our Milky Way galaxy rises straight overhead at 30 degrees south latitude. The Milky Way is absolutely breathtaking from the southern hemisphere. One of the goals I've always had in this class is I want to change your way of looking at the world, especially changing your way of looking at, this, at the world in which we live as, as it is in the sky itself. Hopefully I've gotten some way to making you look at lunar phases differently, but one thing I want you all to try to do is this summer, if you get a chance on your vacations or whatever your travels, get out to a very, very dark place on a clear night and try to see the Milky Way. If you've seen it before, see if after this class you look at the Milky Way very differently. What we see when we look at the Milky Way is a very, very broad, diffuse band of light that crosses the summer, mostly the summer sky, the winter sky if you're down in the southern hemisphere. All cultures that have lived in the outdoors, which is basically everybody before the modern age, has given a name to this thing. It's often named after celestial rivers in some cultures. Some of them have called it celestial roads or celestial paths. There's mythologies about this that cover every culture we've ever encountered. 
Now, the name that we give to the Milky Way today is actually derived from Greek and Latin. In fact, both of the words we're going to use for the Milky Way were derived from Greek and Latin. The first of these is from Greek. The Greeks referred to it as the Galaxias Kuklos, the Milky Band. So we often use the term galaxies to describe these large assemblies of stars that have a slightly milky appearance to the eye when viewed through a telescope. That's a remembrance of what the Greeks called the Milky Way as it went across the sky. In Latin, it got termed the Via Lactea, the road of milk, since Via was often used as way. For example, Via Appianus, the Appian Way, we now call it the Milky Way. And again, the appearance of this, if you've ever gone out to see it, and please hurt you really to go out and see it, it's quite spectacular. It really does appear as a bright, luminous cloud going across the sky. It just sort of looks a milky white. You don't see the individual stars like you do in this beautiful, deep, deep photograph. But you do see that it isn't a continuous wash of, of, of brightness. It's actually broken up by dark ridges. Many of these dark ridges, in fact, are given names, especially in the southern hemisphere. The aborigines of, of Australia, for example, had constellations made by connecting the stars, but they also had figures like a kangaroo and an emu, which they saw in the dark patches of the Milky Way. So it's a very distinctive feature. What we're seeing is we're living inside of a vast system of stars. In fact, the origin of the Milky Way here, why it's referred to as the, the road of milk, goes back to a... Uh, a particular Greek legend, which has this or Greek and later Roman legend, there's this beautiful painting here by Jacopo Tintoretto, which is in the National Gallery of London, in which basically this child is being torn away from this mother's breast and the, the milk spattered into the sky to make the Milky Way. It's my little culture bit for today. But now we want to approach the question of the Milky Way not so much from the sort of fanciful and mythological point of view, but as a practical point, just what the heck is it? Well, of course, it turns out that the very first view that changed the, what the Milky Way was, to the naked eye, it looks like simply a very smooth, cloudy band of light, was in 1610 when Galileo first started applying his then newly built telescope to the sky. In Astronomy 161, we talked about the craters of the moon, we talked about the, the moons of Jupiter and all the various telescopic discoveries in our solar system. But one of the things that Galileo also did was turn it on the starry portions of the sky. He found, for example, that the seven sisters, which appears as seven stars to a sharp-eyed person, broke into tens upon tens of stars. We, in fact, know that the Pleiades is, in fact, an open cluster of stars less than 100 million years old today. When he turned his telescope on the galaxy, on the Milky Way, he got a tremendous surprise. When he wrote about it in his Sidereus Nuncius, the book that made him famous throughout Europe, he said, for the galaxy is nothing else than a congeries of innumerable stars distributed in clusters. When he turned his telescope on the Milky Way, what he found was it was made of so many stars you couldn't even begin to count them. In fact, some of those stars were clearly aligned into very tight clusters of stars. There were clouds and there were dark places, which he thought were places where the stars were missing. This was a tremendous surprise to Galileo. It was tremendously influential upon him and upon everybody else who took a pair of, of telescope or later a pair of binoculars, which is one of the common ways in which telescopes were built back in the older days, and saw that the Milky Way consisted of far more stars than a human being could even begin to count everywhere you looked along its band. This began to raise all kinds of interesting philosophical questions. What was the point of having the, the Earth... the Earth created for the benefit of human beings and the stars at night if you couldn't see the vast majority of them. This made people begin to wonder if, in fact, this Earth-centered way of viewing the entire universe 
was philosophically, theologically, or whatever else tenable. It simply doesn't begin to make sense anymore when you see the most prominent features in the sky actually being made of probably other suns. Now, of course, this got a lot of people thinking, and in the, in the generations that followed Galileo, there were certainly telescopic observations, but people really got to think about what the meaning of this whole system was. What was it trying to tell us that the, the Milky Way appeared as a band? That ev- It wasn't that everywhere you looked that you saw lots and lots of innumerable stars. It was only in this bright band. One of those people was a man by the name of Thomas Wright. He was a Briton. He was motivated primarily by theological considerations. He wanted to understand the creation because he felt that was a way to get closer to God. He himself made no observations that we know of, but he put together a lot of the knowledge of his time. In fact, in many ways, he was responsible for a lot of the popularization of both Newtonian and Copernican ideas, even though his motivation was motivated by kind of a sort of a vaguely, um, vaguely theistic uh, Anglicanism. What Wright basically thought was that because the Milky Way appeared as a band, because in fact the Milky Way itself was a large spherical shell, and the sun is riding sort of halfway between the edges of that shell. As we looked out in one direction, we look along the length of the shell, and we see lots and lots of stars. But as I look towards the center or away from the center of that immense spherical shell, I, of course, am looking through the thin part of it, and so I don't see very many stars at all. So the sun in this beautiful uh, woodcut here is located here in the center on one edge of this vast shell of stars. If you look along this direction, you see a lot of things out of the plane you don't. If I then turn that into a cartoon to show you sort of an an idea of the extent there, Wright put the sun here at the edge of this immense spherical shell. If I look in this direction, of course, I see lots of stars along that line of sight. If I look out perpendicular to the local plane, I see very, very few stars. So Wright correctly inferred the fact that the Milky Way appears as a band is because, in fact, it's got a plane. It's basically thicker with a thin portion above and below. And the number of stars I see is representing simply the, the amount of the thickness through that that I'm actually observing. Although how he inferred this large circular position, of course, is he placed something special and celestial down here at the middle. But... That that theological indication aside, Wright basically was thinking pretty much correctly about the geometry of the system. To take a somewhat less theological point of view, the the actual one of the key insights to possibly what the Milky Way was actually came from a contemporary of, of, of Thomas Wright by the name of Immanuel Kant. Those of you who've studied philosophy, for example, or may have been had inflicted upon you such books as The Critique of Pure Reason or The Critique of Pure Judgment, I slogged my way through them once too, um, have certainly run into Immanuel Kant. Of course, for my generation, I also can sort of remember portions of Monty Python's Philosopher's Drinking Song when I think of Immanuel Kant, so I keep from giggling. Kant was actually influenced by Wright. Wright's ideas got written up in a German newspaper, Uh, Kant read that article, but he misread it. He sort of didn't quite understand what Wright was talking about. The translation wasn't too good, and so he didn't really realize that Wright was talking about an immense spherical shell surrounding a very large volume which contained at the center heaven or whatever it is Wright thought he was putting down there. So he took this idea and kind of, this mistranslated idea and kind of ran with it. But also I want to remind you is he took no data of his own. He was working in Germany and he wasn't actually using a telescope as near as we can tell. It certainly didn't inform his observations. What he thought was he took this idea of the band and said, oh, well, of course, what's happening is the sun is actually somewhere in the middle of a large, flattened distribution of stars. He gave it a somewhat lenticular shape. It looks sort of like a lentil bean or a lens to, to his eye. 
And these stars are all rotating around the center. Kant was a very much um, dedicated Newtonian. So he understood that the mutual gravity of all those stars meant they would orbit around their common center of mass. He was very much ahead of his time in the thinking of this. He actually thought of the Milky Way as a real physical system, and it had to obey what he thought were the logical rules of Newton. So you end up with a large, lens-shaped disk of stars rotating about some common center. He didn't know where that center was. He put no particular location for the position of the sun because he had no information to tell whether the sun was at the middle of that or riding out somewhere other than the middle. Because there's simply no data, but he realized you probably could learn with the proper observations. Furthermore, he went one step further. Kant was never one who was afraid to speculate, even when he lacked data. Telescopes had been applied now for the better part of a century and a half now since the discovery in 1610. And as people began to look with bigger and better telescopes at more and more of the sky, they found a lot of so-called nebulae, clouds, little glowing patches of light that were not associated with the Milky Way per se. Some of these were elliptical in shape. Some of them were kind of flattened in shape. And Ken said, aha, those are other Milky Ways like our own. They're just much, much more distant, and they're far outside the lens of our own Milky Way. It was an extremely bold speculation based on very little data, just descriptions of things. The simple fact that the Milky Way appears as a band, and so we're just simply sitting somewhere near the midplane of that band, and that these other spiral, these other elliptical nebulae, these other clouds, some of them were in fact other Milky Ways, other disc-shaped groups of stars. He called it, based on a word from another man by the name of, of um, Humboldt, the island universe theory. Kant was right in almost every particular, except that he based it on no observation, simply a synthesis of the ideas current his time. It was very, very much ahead of his time. In fact, he was ahead of thinking all the way into the 20th century, as we'll see tomorrow. Now, a contemporaries of Kant and Wright working in England were two Germans, a brother and sister, who had actually, they fled from Hanover. Remember that the Georges were the Hanover kings they were, um, of England. He, William had basically been a bassoonist in the, in the army of, uh, of the Prussians, decided that he, that he liked life better as a bassoonist in the court of King George the whichever, um, getting out of the nasty wars in Germany at the time and fled to England. He was a math mathematician, and he was very adept at making lenses and mirrors. And he built himself a very large telescope, and his sister Carolyn helped him out. Together, they slowly but surely built up to a 48-inch telescope, a reflecting telescope with a four-foot diameter mirror. Now, an earlier version of, this telescope, of these telescopes, William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus in, in searches of the sky, just sweeping around the sky with his telescope just to see what he could see. The discovery of Uranus made Herschel famous. He attempted to name it, basically, for King George III, uh, luckily, calmer heads prevailed, and it was named after Uranus, one of the Greek gods, in this case, one of the Greek gods of the, of the universe. Um, and his fame and support from the royal house was enough to allow him to build an observatory and work pretty much for the rest of his life, studying and mapping the sky. In this work, Herschel would basically man the eyepiece, while Carolyn would keep track of the time, because the telescope didn't track, so you had to know where you were looking in time and taking notes, and occasionally Carolyn herself would take a turn at the eyepiece. Carolyn discovered something like a dozen comets during the course of her life. 
One of their projects was to count stars. They would pick certain regions in the sky, and they, especially along the Milky Way and out of the plane of the Milky Way, and he would try to count within the field of his eyepiece many of the uh, so supposedly uncountable stars. He would count all the bright stars. He wouldn't try to count to the really faint ones. And they d- created 683 different lines of sight through the Milky Way. They called these because what they were trying to do was gauge distances. They called these star gauges. Now, what they had to do was by counting the stars, he was also trying to judge their apparent brightnesses, the difference of brightness from one to another. You can actually do that with the human eye. In fact, the human eye is roughly sensitive to stars of roughly a factor of 100 in difference between the brightest thing you can see and the faintest thing you can see. That's about the point at which you can begin to judge the brightness of stars. So Herschel would start with things like stars he could see with his naked eye and then look through the telescope and compare the brightness of those naked eye stars to the fainter stars and so extend this sort of quantitative way of measuring star brightnesses. He didn't have instruments. He was just using his eyes. It was really quite a remarkably hard piece of work. Now, just like we did today in our problem, he said, well, let's assume that all the stars I'm looking at have the same basic luminosity. Let's assume that they, in fact, are all as luminous as our sun. Now, that isn't necessarily a great assumption, as we've already learned. In fact, stars are all of a huge range of luminosities, but Herschel didn't know any of this. So if you're going to start somewhere, at least start somewhere that seems reasonable. Now, we know stars are different colors. There's various things about that that bothered Herschel. So Herschel basically kept, to all, kept away from really bright blue stars and really red stars because those were clearly different. And he said, let's just assume that all the stars were the same luminosity as the sun. In that case, under that assumption, and there's nothing else going on, assume then that the differences in brightness simply reflect differences in distance. So what he did was essentially a by-eye estimate of luminosity distances to all the stars he counted along his various star gauges. The second thing he did is he assumed that through the telescope you could see to and past the edges of the system of the Milky Way. That you weren't limited by suddenly not so much when you the faintest stars were, were limited not by because that was the faintest thing you could see, but because you were literally running out of stars. There were no stars further away and then not fainter. Now, neither of those assumptions will turn out to be correct. But they did a pretty good job of mapping out the distribution of the Milky Way. It was certainly a first attempt. What they developed was a model of the Milky Way in which the Milky Way was flattened into a disk. In fact, Herschel referred to it with the German word for a grindstone. And because every direction he looked, in one direction of the plane or another, along the Milky Way, he saw the same approximate number of stars and assuming he could see to that end of that distribution, then he thought that the sun must be located very near the center. Because if we were located a bit off center, I would reach the edge fat sooner, the edge would be closer, and therefore the edge would be outlined by brighter stars than the other side of the sky, which would have the edge further away, and so stars at the edge there would be fainter because they're more distant. But the fact that he seemed to see equal, roughly equal numbers to his eye of stars of similar brightness located the sun roughly in the middle of all these different directions. So these are a couple of portraits later in life of both William and Carolyn Herschel and the telescope that they used, this rather large assembly that they set up outside of a small estate paid for by the King of England. 
This is the Herschel star map. It was finally drawn. This version comes from a woodcut from a 1785 version of the book. The sun is located here in the center, and you can see sort of the tendrils of the various star gauges. Here's where it's not a perfectly smooth disk now. There's sort of fingers pointing out. What's really happening here is this is a portion of the Milky Way where there's a dust dark dark dust dark a dusty lane of gas and dust, which is actually obscuring the line of sight and preventing him from seeing further. The sun is not exactly in the middle of this distribution, but it's fairly close. It's located relatively close to the middle. And so we located it at the effective middle. Of course, when you look out of the plane, you see it in various directions. So this is the way the Herschels looked at the Milky Way. And this is based on an attempt to measure it by counting stars, by actually seeing if you can tell out all the way to the edge and assuming that all stars were similar brightness and unaffected by anything other than their, their great distance from us. They get fainter only because they're further away, not because there's something intervening between them that helps block that light. Now that technique is not crazy, but you have to apply it with a little bit better knowledge of what's actually going on in stars. And a man by the name of Jacobus Kaptein, working from the years 1901 through 19, 1922, did the same thing the Herschels did, but he applied the use of photography to it. Photography had a number of advantages. One is that it recorded the stars so you could look at them at leisure, not counting them as quickly as you could as they swept by as the Earth rotated. The other was the apparent, relative apparent brightnesses of stars is much easier to quantify than sort of gauging by eye what is going on because a brighter star leaves a brighter impression, if you will, upon the photographic plate. Furthermore, Captain knew the stars were not all the same brightness. He knew that some stars were more luminous than others, but he had various tools available to him to actually judge the distances to stars. And the way he did this was to combine use of parallaxes and proper motions, the motions of the stars that were measured from photographs taken many years apart in the sky. By doing this, he could actually come up with fairly straightforward ways of estimating distances to, pot to groups of stars and then apply his information on nearby stars to distant stars. So pretty much the whole program that I described yesterday in outline with a few extra subtleties that, that Captain brought to it was largely he brought that machinery into play. It wasn't perfect. He didn't have parallaxes out to very large distances in the early part of the 20th century, but he had enough. Now, he assumed, like the Herschels and everybody else who had gone before them, that when a star looks faint, it's because it is far away compared to a nearby star of exactly the same type. But what if, in fact, space isn't empty? What if, in fact, space is filled with gas and a little bit of dust? That gas and dust will actually absorb light. The further you have to travel through it, the more it will absorb. Think about going out on a foggy day, right? The air is not completely empty of stuff. Even if it's not foggy, it might be slightly hazy. Across this room, the haze doesn't make any difference. From here to the end of the block, you might start noticing that the traffic lights down there are just a little bit less distinct. But from here all the way to viewing downtown, downtown doesn't look so clear because you're looking through a very thin haze. The further you go through the haze, the more light you're losing. It's getting scattered out of your line of sight by suspended, suspended water particles in the, in, in the air. Dust particles do the same thing. If you're looking through a large distribution of dust, the further away you get, first to order, the star gets fainter because it's further away. But to second order, and sometimes very importantly, some of the light is being removed from the line of sight by hitting dust particles. And so that star appears fainter than it would otherwise. Since it appears fainter than it would otherwise if there was nothing intervening, 
you think it's fainter because it's further away and you overestimate the distance. So fainter stars are just further away, but if they're being absorbed, that adds to on top of that geometric effect. So Kaptine applied this over a number of years. It took him about 20 years to take all the observations. And at the, at the end of this process, he, he basically was able to map out the size of the galaxy, but now put a physical size on it, because unlike the Herschels, he knew how far away the stars were, because he had parallaxes and proper motions to work with. What Kaptine developed was a model in which the, the Milky Way was a flattened disk, approximately 15 kiloparsecs in length, we're now dealing with size scales so large, I don't talk about thousands of parsecs, but I'll use the shorthand kiloparsec. One kiloparsec is a thousand parsecs. So if I look along the plane of the Milky Way, it extends approximately 15 kiloparsecs in diameter. If I look out of the plane to the thin parts, just like in Wright's model, I see very few stars, and I get a disk approximately three kiloparsecs in thickness, with the sun located slightly off center and a little bit above the midplane. So Kaptein removed the sun from the very center of the Milky Way, but it was still relatively close. Kaptein's paper is not the most easy thing to read. He didn't draw a nice sketch for it in the Astrophysical Journal, so using the data in his paper, I've reconstructed approximately a la PowerPoint what it looks like. 17 kiloparsecs, or 15 kiloparsecs on the other. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. One kiloparsec is approximately 1,000 parsecs. It's about 15 to 17 kiloparsecs in length, about 3 kiloparsecs in thickness. Its center is sitting over here somewhere, and roughly, I think the number is about a half, half a kiloparsec above the plane, and a couple thousand parsecs away is located the sun. This little circle with a dot inside of it is the old alchemical symbol for the sun, for Helios, and we're going to be using it throughout here as a symbol for where the sun is. It's right there in the middle of that target. So this is the Kaptein Milky Way model published in 1922 in the Astrophysical Journal. At least it's sort of a cartoon variation thereof. Again, what we see is Immanuel Kant's flattened kind of lens-shaped disk. We're looking at a cross-section of this disk, so you can imagine that it extends out of the screen. We're looking at that disk edge on. We're located close to, but not exactly at the center, a little bit off to one side. Some astronomy textbooks, I, I don't remember if yours is, is guilty of this, actually says that Kaptein placed the sun at the center of the Milky Way. That's incorrect. It is, in fact, off-center. And it is approximately 17,000, 15, 17,000 parsecs across, 3,000 parsecs in thickness. This is the Kaptein way of viewing it. But is it right? Well, one of the problems, of course, is what Kaptein is doing is basically what the Herschels did with much more advanced techniques and better ways of estimating distances, but he neglects the effect of absorption. He's attempting to measure the size of the galaxy by looking at the distributions of the distances of stars. But there's a lot of assumptions that go into it, and it's a fairly difficult thing to do. One of Kaptein's contemporaries was the Harvard astronomer Harlow Shapley. He worked at the Harvard College Observatory. He was a Missouri boy. Originally went to college in Missouri, finally was found his way to Harvard, was one of the really the most brilliant astronomers of the early 20th century. Harlow set himself about the task of studying globular clusters, these bright gl gl spherical globs of, of 100,000 to a million stars that we now know contain some of the oldest stars in the Milky Way. They're uniformly, he noticed a couple of facts about where those globular clusters appear in celestial coordinates on the sky. For example, if you wanted to find a globular cluster, the best place to look is above and below the plane of the Milky Way. There are a couple down in the plane, but they tend to be found above the plane as well. That's very different from open clusters. Open clusters are only found along the band of the Milky Way. 
So there was one interesting clue. Something about these globular clusters was above and below the plane of the Milky Way. Furthermore, they weren't just anywhere on the sky. If I walk out in the middle of the summertime and I look out in the direction of the constellation of Cygnus or I look in the direction of the constellation of Orion, I don't see a lot of, in wintertime, I don't see a lot of globular clusters. But if I look down towards the constellation of Sagittarius in the sections of the sky to the north and south of Sagittarius, which is where one of the brightest parts of the Milky Way is in the sky, I see huge numbers of globular clusters. In fact, it's pretty obvious that globular clusters are not covering in every direction that I look. They all tend to preferentially be in one direction. If you want to, if you want to study globular clusters from the northern hemisphere, you do it in the summertime, late spring and early fall. You don't study globular clusters this time of year. That's why if you go to the telescope on the roof of Smith Lab, we really would have a hard time showing you a glob globular cluster during the winter, winter time because there are very few in the winter sky. So there's a clear asymmetry. They're not just everywhere, unlike stars of most other types. So what's going on? Well, what he did was he said, well, let's actually find out where these are in space. We know how they map onto the, onto the celestial sphere, but where are they in depth? Well, one of the things that globular clusters have in them in relative abundance are RR Lyrae stars. RR Lyrae stars, as we learned yesterday, are pulsating horizontal branch stars. They all have roughly the same luminosity, and they have a very small range of periods. They're very distinctive. So even if you go look at a globular cluster, as we learned last week, globular clusters are old. They're about 10 billion years old. That means their low-mass stars have evolved off of the main sequence into, super, into giants, and some of those giants have actually evolved to the helium-burning stage, and globular clusters have pretty well-defined horizontal branches. They have helium-burning, evolved helium-burning stars in them. One small section of that helium-burning sequence is unstable against pulsations. Those objects are the RR Lyrae's. They're very distinctive. You look at a globular cluster containing 100,000 stars, and the RR Lyrae's are the ones that are blinking on and off in a half-day to one-day period of pulsation. So out of those, all those hundreds of thousands of stars, you just take a series of photographs hour after hour, and you look for the things that are just winking at you. And you identify the, the R. Lyrae's. Shapley knew that R. Lyrae stars, from local studies of clusters for which you had distances using HR diagrams and other techniques, all were the same brightness, approximately. The slower pulsating ones were a little bit fainter than the brighter pulsating ones, but you averaged all that out. So if you saw two R. Lyrae stars of the same period, but one was fainter than the other, then just like the question this morning, you knew that that R. Lyrae star was further away because the only difference between them could, would be their, their distance because their luminosity was intrinsically the same. So what he did was use the R. Lyrae stars in the globular clusters to map the distance to the globular cluster. The R. Lyrae belongs to that cluster, therefore the distance to the R. Lyrae is also the distance to that cluster. He used a local calibration as best as he could achieve and mapped out the positions in space of all the globular clusters. This is his map. This is a modern version of what he published in the Astrophysical Journal. I'm sorry, again, I prettied it up a little bit into um, using PowerPoint, but I'm using exactly his data. So here's the sun located here at the center of the coordinate system. He called right here 0, 0. The vertical axis is distance out of the plane of the Milky Way. The horizontal axis is in distance in the plane of the Milky Way. And what I've done is simply collapse down. This is towards the constellation of Sagittarius. This other section over here to the left is away from the constellation of Sagittarius. If you will, winter sky on the left, summer sky on the right, north 
and south, or above and below, the apparent plane of the Milky Way across the sky. And what you see is, again, this obvious observation that you tend to find globular clusters above and below the plane of the Milky Way, as well as down close into it. You don't find many in the winter sky. You find them all bunched up in the summer sky around the constellation of Sagittarius. But now he's measured the distances from the sun here at the center out to all of these, and some of them are very far away indeed. According to his measurements, they got up to 50 kiloparsecs away. It's a huge difference, distance. Remember, Captain had the nearest edge of the Milky Way was no more than about 8 kiloparsecs from the sun. So this was now a huge difference, six or seven times much bigger than the Captain model of the same time. And if you look at, well, where are these guys all clustered around? They're clustered around this place he set out here about 17, 18 kiloparsecs away in the constellation of Sagittarius, as if they are all centered there, not around the sun. From this, Shapley concluded, in fact, that's the center of the Milky Way galaxy. The globular clusters, which appear above and below and have these convenient distance indicators, the globular clusters embedded within them, that's actually mapping out the distribution of where stuff is to the dynamical gravity center of the Milky Way, and we can only see a very limited distance in the plane. And so if you simply counted stars in the Milky Way, you're only going to see the local portion of it that we can see. The rest of it is so far away, we can't see those stars, and so you misgauge where you are. It's like assuming that the Ohio State campus is the middle of Columbus, not, say, downtown. Because you can only see out just so far, you can't see the far southern or the far northern suburbs. So by 1921, when Shapley published his results, it was a tremendous revolution in our understanding of the shape of the galaxy. The globular clusters are a subsystem that are centered on the dynamical center of the Milky Way. The sun is approximately 16 kiloparsecs away from that center of the Milky Way. And the Milky Way itself is a flattened disk, which by applying the globular cluster distribution is nearly 100 kiloparsecs across. So we go from Captine, a direct contemporary of Shapley, giving you something 15, 17 kiloparsecs across, to now something 100 kiloparsecs across. It's a ba the right basic result. The center of our Milky Way is, in fact, in the constellation of Sagittarius. The brightest concentration of the Milky Way is the spectacular section in the middle of, of Sagittarius. In fact, if, we'd if, we'd, if, if our societies had actually been in the southern hemisphere rather than the northern, there would have been no argument about this because when you're south of the equator and you look up at the Milky Way at night, the bright central bulge, as we call it, of the Milky Way is the most obvious thing in the sky towards the constellation of Sagittarius. You would not assume we're in the middle of the distribution because it's so obvious that it's more bright in one direction than another. However, Shapley also ignored absorption. He ignored the fact that there is dust and gas along the line of sight he thought the stars were faint only because they were far away. Ignoring absorption, he tended to overestimate the distances to the globular clusters and so put the galactic center and the size of the Milky Way further away than they really are. This problem of absorption is a very important one to us. Okay? If we actually take a look at a photograph of the Milky Way, it's not all stars. You can see it broken up by dark clouds of dust. These are not missing stars. They're just simply being blocked by dust and absorption between us and the distant stars. Dust not only absorbs, but it scatters light. And so distant objects look fainter than they would simply from the inverse square law of brightness. They're fainter than the inverse square law of brightness for their true distance would predict. 
So if you would neglect the effect of absorption when measuring a luminosity distance, you assume that the object is faint only because it is far away, and so you tend to overestimate luminosity distances. This is a huge bugaboo in this problem. It's the single biggest source of systematic mistakes, errors, that we get in measuring luminosity distances is how we account for or not properly the effects of dust absorption between us and the object we're trying to observe. And it still retains to be a problem to this day. Now, it affects every attempt to measure the size of the Milky Way that has gone on before. Shapley was affected by it, but he picked a population of objects, globular clusters, that tended to be above and below the plane. Most of the dust absorption is confined to the very mid-plane of the galaxy. So by picking globular clusters, he helped by looking along the least absorbed line of sights, but there was still absorption, enough to affect his answer by almost a factor of two. He overestimated his distances by a factor of two on average. Shapley and Captine knew about this stuff. They, they saw the photographs. They assumed it was negligible, that it was unimportant compared to distance. It was not until the 1930s that a man named Robert Trumpler showed that it was extremely important. So important, in fact, it's the biggest source of error in our observations. So when we take that into account, jumping ahead, this is our modern view of the Milky Way. It is a flattened disk of stars with a bright central bulge bisected by a strong disk of dust and gas. The sun is located off-center, approximately eight kiloparsecs from the center of that galaxy. That center of the galaxy is in the constellation of Sagittarius, where Shapley put it. It's just that he overestimated the distance by about a factor of two. It's more like eight instead of 16 kiloparsecs. The outer edge of the disk, it really doesn't have an edge, but the outermost part where we can draw it is approximately 30 kiloparsecs in diameter. And if we look at the edge, it's only about one kiloparsec thick. The galactic center, in Sagittarius, and much of the disk is obscured to dust. So if you counted stars, you're only going to see the small sector around which we live, and so you're going to assume we're very close to the center. So this is the true Milky Way, but how does it relate to those other spiral nebulae and elliptical nebulae that Kant saw? Is it, in fact, an island universe? That's the question we'll pick up tomorrow.